The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Dr. Bodie Panisi is an extension horticultural specialist at the University of Georgia. She has statewide responsibilities for the Georgia landscape industry and conducts applied research with emphasis on sustainable outdoor and indoor landscapes, which include plant, water, nutrient, and soil interactions. Dr. Panisi also teaches online university-level courses titled Herbs, Spices, and Medicinal Plants, along with a plant physiology course. She also teaches Master Gardener training classes on landscape installation and maintenance, water-smart landscapes, interior scapes, herbaceous and woody ornamental plant selection, plant propagation, and plant physiology. Dr. Panisi serves as educational advisor to the Georgia Green Industry Association, the Urban Ag Council, and the national organization Green Plants for Green Buildings. She serves on the Environmental Committee of the National Initiative for Consumer Horticulture. Dr. Panisi is also the editor-in-chief of Scientia Horticulture. This is episode 113, Mastering the Art of Growing and Harvesting Flavorful Herbs with Dr. Bodhi Panisi an encore presentation and remix of episode six. Buddy, what is an herb? It's an interesting question that unfortunately doesn't have a simple answer. Depending on who you're talking to, someone who is an herbalist may give you one answer and someone who is a botanist may give you another answer. So let's start with the botanists. When you ask what's an herb, a botanist will think that this is a plant that is very small, bears seeds and lacks permanent woody stem. While an herbalist is going to look at far wider range of plants. In addition to what we call herbaceous perennials and annuals, for him or her, those could include trees, shrubs, vines, and more primitive plants like algae and mosses. So, yes, depends on who you ask and who the practitioner is, so to speak. What about a chef? What would a chef answer be? Ooh, that's another good one. A chef's answer will probably include plants that have culinary uses, so in the kitchen and cooking. For them, they might distinguish between spices and between herbs, which are fresh herbs. Herbs seem to be rather mysterious, and they've got quite a history. Would you unravel a little bit of the mystery in the history? It's interesting. When we talk about herbs, and I really got interested in herbs years and years ago, I teach an undergraduate course at the University of Georgia, Herb, Spice, and Medicinal Plant. I've been teaching it, oh, since about 2010. And since 2015, it's been fully online. My interest originates back when I was growing up in Bulgaria. My mom and my grandmothers all used fresh herbs and dried herbs in cooking, come from Bulgaria. It's a part of the Mediterranean culture. Much of the cuisine uses herbs, both, again, fresh or dried. Later on, perhaps I was in grad school, I ran across a book that I really, really enjoyed and it stayed with me for many, many years. And that was Gene Owl's 
kind of the cave bear and all the other books that followed in the story. It's a fiction story about a young girl who was raised by Neanderthals, but she belonged to the Homo sapiens species. So you'll think back, you know, something like, you know, 60,000 years ago. They really delved a lot about where herbs and medicinal plants, how they interwove with the culture and all the uses that the societies used them. With that, I was just really captivated by the richness and the history behind it. I started researching this subject. Then there was a colleague of mine who was already teaching herb spice and medicinal plants course. And so I asked him, would you mind if I develop a course that is online? His name is James Appleter. He is a professor of horticulture and he researches a lot of native plants. So he works with a state botanical garden in Athens. Since then, I put together this course and I have learned so much about how people have used medicinal plants and herbs and spices since antiquity. Some of the earliest records really date back 60,000 years ago. They have been some frozen man with something resembling like a small packet material that didn't appear to be food, something in small amounts that was like dried bark, seeds, some vegetative material. The thought of the ethnobotanists and the archaeologists was that this was actually a medicinal plant. From there on, people have looked at medicinal references uh, throughout history. From Egypt, there were some Ebers papyrus that was really, really old, 2,500 years BC. From then on into the Babylonian times. So we're talking about stone tablets with etchings. And they seem to show some depictions of plants and then refer to some usage in medicinal use. Really, throughout history, medicinal plants have been essential. That's how modern medicine really got its roots. That's how it started. We did not have CVS pharmacies and Walgreens around the corner, right? We had to look to nature. That knowledge was accrued through many, many histories throughout the whole world, throughout the globe in different societies. People used different parts of plants, different plants, and before they even had written language, they had to record the use of those plants. They had to first find out what the plants are, recognize them in the wild. They weren't even cultivating them. They were just gathering them, collecting parts of it, whether it was a root or a leaf or a flower or a seed or bark of a tree. Then they had to figure out what would that be good for. Really, mostly what is thought of as trial and error that knowledge was accumulated and also these people who kind of had the ability to see plants in a different way. It's kind of like this is a knowledge to be learned from people observing plants and, and animals coming together and recognizing these plants, the seasons, how these plants change when they come back from year to year. What is something that is going to be an annual habit, something that is going to be perennial herbaceous plant, something that is going to be a shrub, a tree, something that is going to be like 10 years old, 20 years old, so that you can go back to that grove if it's a bark and you can scrape off the bark. These people started gathering that information and figuring out what are those plants good for. Little bit by little bit, this knowledge was told from a person to person. It was thought that it was really held pretty closely by people that were trained, mother to daughter, grandmother to mother to daughter, and so forth. Someone in, in male role also had that knowledge, depending on the society. This is really what they call indigenous medicine people. One of the really sad stories is that a lot of that knowledge is really being lost because people do not live 
like that anymore. They don't live close to nature to that degree. We do have modern medicine. So there is really almost no need to continue that kind of knowledge. Nevertheless, it is very, very rich history and has been with humanity since the inception. It's really fascinating. Sounds like it. Is there any official way to categorize herbs? When you think about for culinary use, you think of use plants that you can grow in a garden. Then you can use spring, summer, and fall, not much in the winter, unless you're growing indoor plants, of course, and then you can enjoy the fresh herbs throughout the year. Herbs that are used in cooking would be soft stemmed, soft leaved type of plants. A lot of them are very familiar to all of the listeners, I'm sure. Where would we be without basil and the pesto? Next to it, garlic, which is a little bit stronger and you, we consume it in more quantity. Also very important in pesto. Then from there, parsley and thyme, rosemary, sage and savory, marjoram, and the list goes on and on. And you think of celery, parsley. I'm thinking about the family. So in my own mind, I'm actually separating them by family. A lot of the herbs, what we call the Mediterranean herbs, of course, come from the old world. They have long history of use in that part of the world where I come from. So it's like the mint family, and then there is the carrot family, which the celery and dill, parsnip, carrots, those are not the herbs, the last two I mentioned, but you know people will recognize those too. From the new world come a lot of spices that are somewhat unique. So for example, think vanilla. Vanilla is very, very different. I mean, used in cooking, but it's like sweet. You're going to use extract from a seed pod of an orchid. I mean, how strange is that compared to a leaf of basil? A lot less is known for people that use these spices in particular in cooking because they are usually in ground form. So you use very little. They're very potent. For example, making a cake, you're going to use cinnamon. Any of those pies, you're going to use some allspice and perhaps a little bit of cloves. And when you look at the recipe, you notice that you only need just tiny, tiny bits, say something like one eighth of a teaspoon compared to, say, a fresh herb, basil. I mean, you're going to put like two cups, perhaps. That's a big difference. Fresh herbs, you use a lot more of them. But then again, that's because the plant has so much water and you're using fresh material compared to something like a spice that comes from seeds and bark, those are in a ground up form. So it's much more concentrated. Bottom line, in both of these examples, what you're using is the aromatic substance in those plants. Think about basil, what it smells like. That comes from a substance called terpenes. There's a large group of substances out there, and I'm not going to get into the chemistry of it. My students have to, but your listeners don't have to. But terpenes are what smells. When you are strolling through the garden on a warm, even hot, sunny day, and it happens to be a rosemary bush or an area where you have large rosemary, your nose will detect that smell. That's because these aromatic substances are very volatile. When they're exposed to high temperatures, they quickly volatilize. That is, they become part of the air. The receptors in your nose detect that. That is what like a lavender smell comes from, you know, basil and mint and a whole bunch of others. Those are on the outside of the leaves and the stems in some cases. That's why when you're just strolling through a garden and you brush against rosemary, you're going to get a big whiff of rosemary smell. While you may have to crush the stem of, say, celery or dill to get that smell. 
because the oils, again, same substances, terpenes, they are responsible for the smell, but they're not found on the outside of the leaves, like in basil or rosemary. They are inside the stems and the leaves. It's a little bit of difference in where those substances are located. From there on, they could be in the seeds as well, in the roots, just depends on the plant. For example, like bay leaves. I mean, bay leaves have these oil cavities inside, oil cells. So you really have to cook it a long time to release that oil. We don't crush bay leaves. We always put bay leaves whole in stew and they took on to long cooking. Compared to something like basil or thyme, you just don't use it until toward the very end because those substances will just evaporate very quickly. There are subtle differences in how you use these products. The more you learn about cooking, you'll find out that herbs and spices are essential for bringing flavors to foods. That's how I really was exposed to them from a very young age. Is the aroma, the aromatic properties of these plants, does that have anything to do with pest control? Is that used for that, for the plant? In some instances, pretty much all of the secondary compounds have uses that are Those terpenes that I mentioned and other compounds of medicinal interest, they do serve roles that are different than what you'd consider a normal functioning of the plant. Plant goes around all day long, right? You know, it sticks its carbon dioxide from the air, releases oxygen, absorbs water. That's its regular daily life. But it does need other things too. For example, it needs to color the blooms and attract bees so pollination can occur then you can have a fruit that is set. Think about blueberries, for example. That compound that colors, whether it's a flower or a color of a fruit, a lot of times comes from what we call secondary compounds, which terpenes are type of secondary compounds. Those serve specific roles in a plant, and much research has gone into looking at herbivory, or that is more the keeping deer, for example, or grazing animals or insects from chewing the leaves. That is what a lot of those secondary compounds are doing for the plant. They're protective. We're finding out that they do indeed protect the plants. And some things can be very large. Like I said, deer can uh, be discouraged from browsing on something that is bitter. Same thing goes for humans. We're not going to eat a lettuce that has bitter leaves, right? right? I mean, sometimes it can happen. It's not something that we really do. The same thing applies to, say, a caterpillar. Some caterpillars find ways around these secondary compounds, and that's what we call coevolution. So a plant evolves. It's like an arms race. And a plant will evolve certain chemicals to protect itself from the caterpillar. And the caterpillar will come up with ways to get around that so it can continue consuming the leaves. There are many, many examples in science with that. So you can think of, for example, like milkweeds. There's only few insects that can consume milkweed leaves. And you're certainly not going to see deer grazing on milkweeds. Yet the monarch caterpillar exclusively eats milkweed, and that's what it uses for its forage source. That's what the larva needs in order to get through its stages and turn into a beautiful butterfly. How did that monarch butterfly develop, evolve these chemicals to protect it from the toxic compounds in the weeds? This is what I mean about secondary metabolites and all these. In high concentrations, even things that are normally just fine, you know, you smell basil or you smell rosemary and it's fine. If you get a nose of a huge amount, you'll get sick. If you have it in a concentrated amount and you put it on your skin, you can actually get reaction. 
because they are toxic in high concentrations. You have to have like really, really high concentrations. We're looking at concentrations. Are there just some herbs that we would not want to mess with at all? Or are they unhealthy? Are they deadly? Or what's the story on that? The herbs that we use in cooking are safe. That's not something that we really talk about. Some people, for example, may have an allergic reaction. For example, I used to not like cilantro at all. Now I eat it in small amounts and I like it. My husband and my daughter, they don't really like a whole bunch of herbs that I use. For them, I really have to keep it away. For the most part, you're not going to find a strong allergic reaction to any of the culinary or spices and herbs that are used in cooking. We don't use them in high enough quantities to really cause a concern. Some people rarely have an allergic reaction, and you usually know that the first time you were exposed to or you consumed a spice or you just find the smell objectionable. But the medicinal herbs is a whole different story. They sure are. Do you want to comment on those? Not cures, but just things that you need to be careful about. One example that comes to mind, and it's one of the most researched plants, is foxglove. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous plant that we enjoy. Unfortunately, here in the South, we can't grow all that well like the people up north can grow perennial foxglove. That plant, digitalis, has a long history of being used for heart problems. My understanding is that when they first started looking at congestive heart failure problems or, or preventing arrhythmia, things that are related to cardiovascular, especially heart health. To this day, a digitalis is the source of those compounds that have been now put to use. I would definitely not try to chew on a leaf of digitalis. You can just admire the blooms. What do I need to have in my garden to help those herbs meet their potential? First, I would start with what are the dishes and the herbs that you would like to cook. Let's start with pesto, for example. Simple, do you like pesto? If you like pesto, then you need to have basil. Basil is probably number one herb. It's very easy to use. It's very easy to grow. It's a quick annual. Definitely loves heat. One thing that I tell people who are looking into growing herbs is you find the perfect spot for them. All herbs require full sun, minimum of six hours, direct sun, and really well-drained soil. Some herbs, we just have a hard time growing in the south. For example, think of lavender. The English lavender does not like the heat and humidity in the South. We can grow it to some extent like in cooler parts in the mountains, but not the English lavender. The Spanish lavender is another species. That one we can grow a little bit better. Most people really like the English lavender for that sweetness. It can be used in cooking. Most people would probably just have it for cut flower or nice smells. It has a lot of sedatives, so soothing properties. You think of any kind of soothing lotions and things or herbal pills to help you sleep, chances are lavender oil is part of it. Or lavender candles or these diffusers that had lavender oils. Going back to the culinary herbs, starting with basil. My next one is parsley. Parsley is one of my go-to herbs that I like to grow throughout the year. It's not one of those that actually doesn't like to be in the heat of the summer. That one has easier growth when it is in a little bit of cooler time. So spring, early summer, and then pick up again. You can do that by consecutive seeding of that plant. Full sun, well-drained soil. I grow all of my herbs except rosemary in pots. Works for me. I have a very small garden in the front of my house. I also have some pot on the back deck, and that is very close to my kitchen. So all I need to do is just step outside with my snips and get the leaves I need. Basil and parsley would be the number two. 
Sage, occasionally I grow it just because I really like the smell of it. I don't cook a whole lot of it. It's very potent. I usually just have at hand, oh, probably about 20 different herbs in dried form. Sage is one of them. Ground sage is absolute must for some things like bean stews. Occasionally would grow it, especially the variegated form. It's got this really, really nice look to it. Another plant I like is garlic chives. They are different than your regular chives. Garlic chives are perennial. Those I do grow in the ground. They have beautiful white blooms, are pretty rigorous growing perennial. I mean, it's not like aggressive or anything. I'm just saying it has a healthy growth to it. Rosemary is another one that I grow in soil. Rosemary, we can grow very successfully. You do need quite a bit of space for some of the bush forms, but if you have the prostrate form, it has far less vigor, so it can be contained in a small pot. Occasionally, I brave growing mint because mint is one of my favorite herbs, and I love to make mint tea. It is aggressive. I almost triple pot it, and I watch it just to make sure that it does not start escaping because I've had some issues with it in the past. The same goes for marjoram and oregano. They are all related, but the mints in particular, they have very, very aggressive habit. It's almost like once you have it in the garden, you're going to keep on having little bits of it. If you're okay with that, that's fine. You just have to know that that plant is going to be there a long time. Fennel is another one that I grow not because I use it, but because I love my swallowtail caterpillars. And I always enjoy seeing those come to the fennel and the dill. When I watch the home remodeling TV shows, are my eye rolls justified when I see these cute little pots supposedly growing in the kitchens? Shall I put it this way? I have never been successful in growing those indoors. That does not mean that someone else would not be successful. I just think that they need a lot more light to grow the quantities that satisfy. And I don't want to watch them indoors. I don't want to keep aphids away from them or whatever else they might get. I simply do not fight with growing herbs indoors. Under my conditions and what I do, I'm a lot more of an outside gardener than I'm indoor gardener. The chances of success are better if you grow them outside than inside. I mean, it's just a lot more challenging, right? In my opinion, yes. What are your earliest garden memories? That's a really, really good question. I think the very first memory was me running through my great-grandma's boxwood hedge and brushing against her prized yellow roses. I swear those had the most vicious thorns. (laughs) And I probably scraped my skin many times because we used to hide in those. It was a little garden in the front yard. She also had climbing roses. Those happened to be right next to one path that we used to run around. Probably my earliest memories was being scratched as my great-grandma's <laughs> roses. I also remember my other great-grandma cooking with bean stews. So sage and thyme, those smells are really, really part of some of my earliest memories. What is a landscape garden to you? A place where you could really enjoy spending time, like an outdoor room, a space where you can come in contact with nature. You can enjoy the sunshine. You can watch the plants. You can watch the insects. You can see the interaction between them. Place to learn, place for peace, and it's a place for work. I love to take care of plants. I love to tend to them, take care of them, whether it's snipping the blooms to make something more bushy trimming something to encourage more basal growth. So it kind of like, again, it pushes out or gives me some soft succulent growth. Watching swallowtail caterpillars hatch and start eating the parsley and the dill. I love seeing that. 
or it's the bees. That's another big thing that I'm into is pollinators and pollinator protection. Spending time outside pruning. Tell me about your garden. I have a mixture of plants from herbs to flowers, uh, ornamentals. I have bulbs. I have some native plants. I have some exotic plants. I have my shrubs. I have shade plants. I have full sun plants. And I also have some maple trees. So, yes, it's a little bit of everything. I'd like for you to complete this sentence. In my garden, I would like to have more pollinator plants, so more space. I don't have a large garden. My garden is very small. I live in a HOA association, so we don't really have much freedom in what we do with our front yards. I have a large area that has grass in it, and I would like to enlarge my garden to where I can have more flowers. So yes, that's my wishful thinking. What's your favorite tree? Well, that's easy. I named my daughter after it. <laughs> Nisa, Nisa Silvatica or Nisa Ogichi and a couple of other native species of Tupelo. My daughter is named NYSSA Nisa. So yes, I do love that tree and I love the honey that comes from it. It's actually quite different than any other honey out there. The blossoms of just about any plant that produces nectar is used by honeybees. You can have flower honey. You can have honey that comes from wildflowers. That means that the honeybees were allowed to forage on a variety of blooms. Occasionally, you have hives that are placed in monocultured places. So, for example, if it's a, a place where the honeybees will only go to one particular plant or several species that come in the same time and bloom, that honey is very quickly collected and capped, then you have a pretty good idea that this honey is coming from only that particular plant. And those honeys usually are more expensive because it takes a lot of care to make sure that those bees are only going for the nectar from those particular plants. Tupelo honey is very, very highly regarded by connoisseurs and people that really enjoy honey. I love any honey. I mean, it's not like I'm a connoisseur. I just really love honey. When I first started reading about what comes out of Tupelo honey, how it's different, it's very, very interesting. It has somewhat of a greenish color to it, greenish cast. It doesn't become solidified like sugary, you know, how crystals form at the bottom sometimes. Mm -hmm. it, it's actually resistant to that quite a bit. For a while there, I was buying it from a specialized place down in Florida, the Panhandle. There were some honey producers and they would sell it online. And it was truly, truly an experience. Uh, it is expensive. It's more expensive than other types of honey. It is well worth it for a tree. What about your favorite shrub? Tell you one that just popped today in my head, and that is the paper bush. It's worth it is in bloom right now in my yard. I was just watching today a male carpenter bee sip nectar one after another. That little boy had a lot of fun with those blooms. Fragrance was just heavenly. I do like paper bush a lot. I like plants that you can grow in the shade. Those are the ones that are usually what people have. And I like to have layers of vegetation. So whenever there are trees, I like to have the ability to grow something at the edge of them so I can still have the trees, but then also layers of shrubs. Later on, it would be some of the arrowwood viburnum is the next one that will be on my list. That's just what's in my yard. I do like a lot of the viburnums. I think that they're great plants. So the native viburnums in particular, but the exotic ones too, the gorgeous plants. What about ornamental grasses? Little blue stem, that's an easy one. I think the little blue stem is just such a cute native grass. And there's so many different cultivars out there. My colleague, Dr. Carol Robacker on the Griffin campus, she has released some 
cultivars of blue stem. It is amazing to see her field where she makes crosses, puts them out and evaluates them. The different types of growth habit, color of the foliage, how the plant goes into bloom. It is really remarkable to see what we call the natural variability. And it is a native grass, so it's my favorite grass. How tall do they get? Oh, depending on the cultivar, you can get some that would be easily two and a half feet tall. And then there's some that stay pretty small, probably no more than about 15, 18 inches in height. Is she looking for a commercial viable blue stem? She has released already three. They are part of what we call the Hit Parade series. That's just from her program. UJ has released others, commercial producers that also commercial breeders that have released different cultivars. Hers are like Cinnamon Girl and Seasons in the Sun and Good Vibrations. And Good Vibrations has a really interesting kind of like nice arching habit to this foliage. And it's got kind of bluish and purplish violet. So really vibrant look to the foliage, especially when it's planted in you know, mass plantings. We've talked about your earliest garden memories. What would be a memorable moment during your undergrad, grad, university years? It's a really good question. You know, I did spend quite a bit of time down in Florida. That's where I got my master's and PhD. That was from the Environmental Horticulture Department. And so I spent a fair bit of years of my best years, <laughs> one might say, where I studied uh, tropical plants. So I spent a lot of times in um, in the greenhouse, in a very, very hot greenhouse, by the <laughs> way, um, but also in the field too. And I learned a lot about foliage plants, plants that are used indoors. For a good bit of my career, I studied indoor plants, even though I was just telling you that I don't grow about anything indoors. I actually did a lot of work on interior scape ornamental plants. My most memorable times were outside when I was doing my master's. I had constructed 24 miniature shade houses. They were three feet tall and about three feet wide and six feet long. I have a picture being hunched inside taking data (laughs) on my plants. I remember how many hours I spent outside and I just marvel how did I manage to put up with that kind of abuse. It sure is a memory of the youth and all memories of youth are pretty good, good memories. How about a significant teaching moment? I would say the most significant moment was when I was showing my daughter how a bean plant germinates and turns into a seedling. She was five years old. I had shown her how we soak the seed and then how we plant it in a little plastic cup so she could see the root and then the shoot greening up. That little child's face just lit up with that understanding. I mean, just the sheer wonder of that miracle of life that happened from that dried bean, you know, and she doesn't like beans at all. She does like green beans, but not dry beans. I do believe she's going to remember this for a very, very long time. And she helps me in the greenhouse now transplanting quite a bit. So she loves that. Now, this is at the university? Yeah. Yeah. It helps you at the green greenhouse? Yeah. She's not a student yet. She's in high school. <laughs> I occasionally take her to the greenhouse and I have these plants that I need to transplant, lots of native seedlings that I just need a lot of help because I'm growing many. Talking about something that is like several hundred seedlings that need to go in a tray. She has such a more attention to detail and patience. She's really good at that. So she's turned into a very, very good transplanter. My manual transplanter, you know, free labor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, learning experience. That's right. In your professional career, who's been the biggest influencer? 
In my professional career, there were two people that really, really impacted me. And unfortunately, they have both passed. First was my advisor, uh, Dr. Dennis McConnell, from University of Florida. He really taught me science, how to be to think like a researcher, how to do an extension job well, how to care for the industry and listen to what their needs are and hear what they're saying and think from the commercial aspect. He taught me how to merge science and the business aspect of growing plants. The other person who was my colleague for many years, Dr. Paul Thomas, who I'm sure mm -hmm. you know, uh, he was the floriculture extension specialist when I first started at the University of Georgia. He and I spent many, many hours working on publications, visiting floriculture operations across the state, giving talks together. And I learned so much from him. And again, he was just such a wealth of information, such a great guy to be around. I learned how to be an extension, especially a, a working hands-on extension specialist from him. What trends are you seeing in the landscape gardening? I think people will start spending more time outdoors, less time trying to tame their landscape. I think that they're going to start appreciating nature and its wildness, not so much worrying what the neighbors would think. Would the grass would be very green? How much nitrogen I'm putting? Am I mowing it at the right height? I think they're going to let some weeds creep in. I think they're going to notice the bees more, the insects that come. I think that they're going to put less chemicals on, on their shrubs. They're going to just start noticing things more and paying more attention to plants. They're going to learn more about the plants they're growing. They're going to ask more questions. It is my hope that people will start spending more time outdoors in their garden, whether it's a small apartment where you can only grow a few pots with containers, mixed containers or hanging baskets or what have you or is going to be a small garden you can always grow a plant you can learn so much from just one plant take it from seed to flower and you're going to learn do you see the barriers that homeowner associations present dropping or changing I think education is always going to be with us and it should be with us. I think that there is a lot to be gained from working with HOA and neighborhood associations, community partners, whether we work professionally or our own homeowners, because there is just so much to teach other people and share with them your own knowledge and experience. I find out that I always find something to talk to my neighbors when it comes to plants. They always ask me questions. People love to know about plants, whether it's roses or azaleas or crepe myrtles, there is always a plant question they're waiting for me. With that comes a lot of teaching other people how to take care of their yards and what constitutes a good yard, how you should approach it. A little bit of weeds is not bad. Allow nature to come in, leave some spaces in the soil, make sure you use mulch, just leave bare soil so that you could see some of the ground nesting bees. And then once you do that, you're going to learn about those bees. And then next time when you're cutting the lawn and some sweat bee lands on your skin, you're not going to swat it away. You're going to stop, look at it and enjoy it and try to find out where it dwells, how it builds its nest. It's going to learn about nature. You're going to enjoy being outside. Why don't you move somewhere where you could have a really big yard? When I retire, oh, okay. that is on my list of things to have. It's a large yard that I'll be able to grow anything I can think of. I will have the help of my husband and my daughter and grandchildren. God willing, I'll have those. <laughs> they'll be my helpers and they'll be my students and I'll continue teaching those kids. I will continue enjoying nature. So, yes, in the future. It'll come. What is your most valuable garden mistake? 
I had a beautiful rosemary shrub, which was getting to be too big for the space. And I decided to rejuvenate it and I cut it way too much. Consequently, the plant died. So I learned my lesson. You cannot rejuvenate a rosemary. Why not? It does not respond to rejuvenation. Some plants, some shrubs just do not have the same recovery ability compared to say something like a holly. A holly has lots and lots of abilities to generate these what we call epicormic shoots or dormant buds. Rosemary does not have junipers. So we always say this, don't cut beyond the needles. You know, don't go to brown wood. It's mm-hmm. the same thinking when you're looking at rosemary. Overgrown shrub, a large one, just a lot more judicial pruning to reduce its size, branch by branch pruning and some parts of it, but don't cut it like you're going to start from the ground up. It doesn't work. Might be the secondary most valuable mistake you make. Don't try to grow herbs with less than perfect sunshine. They would not grow very well and they would not be so flavorful. That's another thing that I forgot to mention. There is a reason why those herbs need to be in full sun because those aromatic substances, they really, really are synthesized and produced by the plant when it receives a lot of sunshine. Don't try to grow those. They're just not going to be as flavorful. So is there any other shortcomings on herbs that if we don't like the full sun here, but is there anything else that we would need to know that need to make sure we have plenty of? Well-drained soils. That's the reason why I grow a lot of those Mediterranean herbs in pots. I find it a lot easier to manage that and I have more control. I water more. I may even fertilize a little bit more just simply because it's in a container. So you water more. I just find it easier to uh, grow these plants, you know, not like rosemary, like I was saying, but something like basil and parsley grow dill. I grow in, 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 in containers. If somebody wanted to know more about herbs, what is a good resource for that? My textbook that I use for my herb spice and medicinal class, I actually use two. One is getting a little dated, but it is understanding medicinal plants. That one you can still find on Amazon. Uh, Maybe a used bookstore might have it, but it's a really great beginner understanding of medicinal plants. The other book is by Andrew Chevalier, which is herbs. So that's another really good one that I use. It's pretty good size. It's got a lot of information about herbs. So that will be more like a uh, reference material. It does talk a lot about how you prepare not only the herbs, but also some medicinal plants. It gives you a really well-rounded approach to herbs and medicinal plants, while the the first one was more on the chemistry and the botany of understanding medicinal plants. Why do you think your class is so popular? I think that kids are naturally interested in herbs and medicinal plants. I don't think they even know about spices until they start researching material and they start learning more. I think that the material itself is well known. So they get, like me, exposed to herbs at an earlier age. They hear about it. They smell it. So they see a class and they think, oh, that might be fun. I may learn something about cooking. And they do have an opportunity to do hands-on things in, in my class. I think that's a part of it. Just the subject is, is just really interesting. And in my opinion, it's really not hard to learn about these herbs. Teach it in the summer online so that the students can, say, go to an internship or really be in another country altogether because the class is taught from a distance and asynchronously they do it on their own time. So I think that that's part what contributed to its success.
One thing about rosemary that I like to mention is that you can shape rosemary as a hedge. So that is one plant that is unique and that has multifunction. So as a part of a landscape, it has not only, I mean, you can use it in cooking, it also attracts many bees and pollinators, but it also can be shaped so that it is a hedge, an evergreen one on the top of that. You can grow it to pretty good height. Or you can keep it small and short. Overall, that is a very, very interesting multi-use herb. I'll call it herb, but it's, you know, kind of like a small shrub. My success rate with rosemary is about 50%. What are the keys to growing a rosemary? What do you have to have to meet the potential of being a really healthy plant? Well-drained soils, full sun, and plenty of air around it. Do not plant them too close together. Uh, Do not plant them near other plants. Allow air to go through the foliage and the canopy. It keeps things similar to what the Mediterranean climate is like. Don't prune too aggressively. You can easily start from cuttings. That's another thing that I like about rosemary. It is easy to start from just putting a six inch cutting in water and letting it root. From there on, you can start afresh. If you root it in water, how do you transition that to soil? Once it develops roots, not that I recommend usually putting cuttings and then using those cuttings, but that just because I happen to have a greenhouse and I have the ability to nurse plants in, in different stages throughout the year. You know, homeowners may not have that option. Again, that's when indoor garden may come into play. As soon as the plants have formed roots, the cuttings have formed roots and they are probably about, oh, you know, four or five inches long, then I'll transition that to well-drained and clean soilless mix and start in a small container. Don't put it in a large container immediately. I try to match the size of the cutting to the soil, the amount of soil. The shape of the container, probably you can look at it as like, you know, something like a quart pot to a six to seven, eight inch cutting. That would be about the good, you know, estimation matching the top to to the roots. Put it in as soon as you can after about a week being in a Mm -hmm. somewhat shaded conditions just because it needs time to adjust. Then you slowly move it a couple of days, a little bit more sun, a little bit more sun until you transition it to Uh, being fully uh, in in full sun. What is your research focused on now? Currently heavily involved in looking at native plants and pollinators. We have multiple projects with uh, wildflower plantings. Most recent one is going to be looking at uh, wildflowers on blueberry farms to hopefully augment pollinators, natural enemies that they could serve as biological control. We also have a project at the Carter Solar Farm that's also using wildflowers from seed. We want to see if we can get a large-scale pollinator refuge and a habitat, not only for pollinator resources, but also for uh, just a good forage place for all sorts of uh, arthropods and from there hopefully have biodiversity. Those are two projects. I also have a project at the Trillis Studios. So Dan Cathy has graciously funded a graduate student. His name is Spencer Shelton and Spencer grew up in Atlanta. He really loves the outdoors and he loves to spend time landscaping. He's excellent at it. And so we have these native plants that I grew from seed last year in the greenhouse. They're all perennials. So we're talking about, you know, four inch pots, quart pots. We planted them in October. We are going to be looking at fairly soon 
In fact, I was there yesterday seeing some regrowth of those plants. We're going to look at the effect of bed preparation. We use basimid and no-till to see if we can suppress the weed pressure that comes naturally with a lot of these wildflowers. So looking at various things, and we're also looking at some individual native plants and what communities of insects come. So it's like the food web that naturally develops and attracts different arthropods. And I say arthropods because, for example, Spiders are not insects, but they are crawling around there and they're using other insects to, to feed on. That's what we call a food web. So, for example, you know, take a milkweed, you have aphids that come and then you'll have parasitoid wasps that come and parasitize the eggs, then the aphids themselves too. And then you have spiders that come in once the blooms develop. So you have bees and wasps and beetles that come to the blooms and that's where the spider attack. And then finally, the monarchs. Of course, let's not forget the monarchs. So that's the food web that we're looking at. Just one example. How do people connect with you? You can give my email, B as in boy, last name Penisi, B Penisi, P-E-N-N-I-S-I at uga.edu. That's my email. They can contact me by email with any questions they might have. This has been episode 113. Mastering the Art of Growing and Harvesting Flavorful Herbs with Dr. Bodhi Padisi, an encore presentation and remix of Episode 6. Thank you, Bodhi. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.